Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. In Jesus' second letter to the churches of Asia Minor, we encounter a church that knows its fair share of persecution. Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna are both affirming and sobering. They're affirming because they're known for their depth of riches due to their persecution. But his words are sobering because the evil one is working overtime under God's permission of testing. It's a testing where Jesus commands a faithfulness even unto death. As we today live in a world with such a variety and vanity of beliefs, it's a challenging word to be told to live with fearless faithfulness. Thanks for listening. We are in a series studying uh, in the book of Revelation, the letters that are written to the seven churches uh, scattered throughout Asia Minor. Um, I was thinking as Tom was sharing with the children for uh, if you've ever run into um, (laughs) a difficulty in your life or something unexpected. uh, My wife and I ran into a little bit of a quandary semi-recently, went out to a local restaurant. I won't name any names because I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here but uh what great food great great food and they have and you know how it is when you go to a restaurant you get a beautiful menu and we just happened to find on this abnormally hot september day they had blueberry lemonade now i don't know if you've ever had blueberry lemonade i've never had it before so i said i gotta try this they also had strawberry lemonade so she got strawberry lemonade i had blueberry lemonade let me tell you what you cannot drink just one cup of blueberry lemonade (laughs) Uh, and nor can you strawberry lemonade. We ended up having, I think, three or, or four of these. They were so good. And it was a little warm out, so that's how life goes. It's when the bill came due that we were a little bit surprised. Now, I would have, I would have easily paid this, even if there was a child on the side who was selling this as lemonade. It was that good. But it's just uh, interesting to me that sometimes I think we might think we can get away with something a little bit more than we thought we were until the bill comes due and uh and then it's time to pay and um i i believe that there is within the human heart a a willful ignorance to the fact that our god is a judge he's a judge i don't think we like to preach or hear that though very often i think we have a willful ignorance to think that we're free to get away with whatever it is that we want to get away with Um, though this is not a perspective i think that we find so much in the church I think you can honestly, rightly say we see this in our world. And because it's in the culture around us, it subtly seeps into the church uh, without us being aware. Uh, There's a passage of scripture uh, I just want to draw your attention to. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Judgment is something that is coming in the future. And God's wrath, we're told, is portal already in many forms of judgment that we see in our world today. But I fear that we might be influenced by a culture that thinks they have a greater fear of their fellow man than they do of the God who will judge them. You guys get what I'm saying? I, I, I encounter this. I would imagine you do as well. Sometimes it's hard to stand up for your faith. Sometimes in a world that wants nothing to do with honor to Jesus Christ, you calling yourself a Christian is the most offensive thing that you could say. And so who do you fear more? You fear that man that's going to judge you? Do you fear that woman who's going to ridicule you? 
Do you fear that one who's going to talk about you behind your back? Or do you feel the God who will call all things into judgment for whatever is done in the body, whether good or bad? It's, it's too bad that fear so often motivates the church, not just to uh, stop short of where we should be as a church and what we should say as a church, but sometimes never to say anything at all or never to take a stand at all. I saw fear being a, a motivating factor recently in our life. Um, my, my sweet daughter, she scraped her knee recently, and uh, the, the nurse there at the school put a bandage on it. But without oversight, in two days, guess what happens if you don't change the dressing of a scraped knee? It gets infected, and her knee swelled up about twice the size of her other knee. Unfortunately, we noticed this on a Friday when uh, no doctors were around, and so... Without much option, we, uh, to avoid some serious type of infection, carried her to the emergency room. And there, you imagine how this goes with a five-year-old trying to talk them into going to the hospital. (laughs) What's her biggest fear of going to the hospital? She's going to have to get a a shot. That's right. And um, I... I pretty much thought that's not going to happen. Um, I, I was pretty confident they'd find a way that either a topical cream or maybe something that she could take uh, is going is gonna to take care of this. Uh, so sitting down with her as the tears are streaming down her face, I say, honey, they're not going to give you a shot. I'm trying to take her greatest fear out of the way. And guess what? Oh, no, she didn't. I, you thought I was going there. Oh, my goodness. That, that would be a liar, right? Um, she believed me. She actually dried up her tears. She believed her dad's word more than her fears. And we made our way to the doctor and sat down. And to our great relief, uh, as he uh, looked at the wound, he said, this isn't infected at all. This is just uh, the swelling that comes from inflammation. And so there wasn't an infection. We dodged a bullet there. Um, Paid a good little visit to our local medical facility uh, for a scraped knee. So that's how... (laughs) Um, thorough we are. Um, I I, want to point out the fact, though, that as soon as you remove the greatest fear, she was able to do that which was hard. And that's what our lesson today is. Uh, The story that we're going to read in the letter that's written to the church in Smyrna is one that is written to take away your greatest fear. Unless your greatest fear is public speaking, but if, if that's the case, it might not be. But the greatest fear so many people have is death. I, I really don't think there's any problem that you have that cannot be solved by resurrection. Whatever it is that you have, I promise you, can be solved with resurrection. And so if we, if we could hear the words, like my daughter listening to her father, if we could hear the words from our loving Heavenly Father, that there is a promise of life. That there is a promise of resurrection from the one who rose from the dead. You know what that might do for you? That might take away that fear that you might have, whatever that is. So that you and I can stand as the church should stand. Can speak what the church should speak. Not in a condemning fashion, but in a fashion that elevates what God has said to us in opposition to the world around us. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. And we're going to read through this second letter that we have. I've entitled this message, um, Suffering and Testing. Suffering and Testing. So what we're going to do is we'll read through it, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of a background to the city of Smyrna. Um, We're going to have a few 
<clears throat> observations to make as well as a primary story. So, hey, we get a little bit of children's church this morning. Hope you get to enjoy that as I get to read to you a story that is going to help us understand this letter. So, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, that's the letter. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming already that you can hear, wow, if I just believe these words, if I, if I just believed what our Heavenly Father, through the words of Jesus, is speaking by the Spirit to the churches. Um, let's get our bearings here and understand what we're talking about. So uh, Smyrna here, we're, we're, we're looking towards uh, this region of the Mediterranean, and uh, right there is where this uh, city is located. It's only about 40 miles north of last week. We looked at Ephesus last week. So this is right in that same region. If you were to get on a horse, you can make it there in a good hustle. Um, but that's where we're looking. Um, to teach you a little bit about Smyrna, uh, the city itself was called uh, one of the most beautiful cities in all of this area. Uh, it was right there as a port city, so you have those beautiful vistas as well as these hills and mountains surrounding the city. There's actually one ancient writer who depicts a road they called, uh, uh, the, it was streets of gold, they said it. It didn't actually have streets of gold, but it glistened like it did. And the houses paved upon this road shone like pearls in the sunlight. The road itself encircled around the mountain, and so they called it the crown of Smyrna. Uh, this concept of the crown connected with its beauty was a key feature of this city. Not only was it beautiful, uh, but it was also very wealthy. Uh, the city, uh, at the time that this was uh, written, um, estimated around 200,000 in population. But there are some ancient um, sources that indicate it could be well larger than that. So again, we're looking at population of something like Grand Rapids or, or more. Uh, because of this, you saw it as a great port city for a lot of trade and mercantile, mercantilism, uh, commerce happening regularly here. And so because of that, the city was self-governing. And it doesn't take the ruling nation of Rome very long to recognize, hey, look at this crown jewel we've got, one of these beautiful cities. Uh, we need to get in there and get a piece of that. But that doesn't sound like the government, does it? That doesn't sound like government. It was at this time, though. And so one of the things that, that Smyrna is also noted for is being the very first city um, in Asia Minor to have what's called uh, emperor worship. So starting with Tiberius, they enacted 
emperor worship here, which meant simply that you would give uh, um, part of your taxes, your money back to the empire as an act of worship, saying very benignly or sincerely, Caesar is Lord. Now, if you did this well, you would find that you would even get some tax breaks there in the marketplace. If you really paid to Caesar what was Caesar, you would find that things went easier for you and the money would flow in and it would flow out. But for anybody who would refrain from being able to say, Caesar is Lord, how do you suppose it went for them? (laughs) Not good. Not good. And so the fourth thing I want to share with you here in Smyrna is that it is noted for suffering. Uh, the, the, the relief painting that we have here, it's, it's really hard to find pictures of anything back during this time. But some of these paintings, I think, give a good depiction. This particular one that you're looking at this morning is uh, that of the, the kind of the pastor overseeing the churches in the city. Uh, they, they call that position a bishop, and his name is Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was martyred in the second century, second century because he refused to refer to Caesar as Lord. Uh, Smyrna itself, the, the name, is the same word from which we get the term myrrh. Have you heard of that? Right? Christmas time, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? And uh, we would recognize frankincense having to do with uh, beauty and a, a, a fragrant perfume. We would recognize um, gold for its value and its uh, kingly type of homage. Uh, but myrrh, do you remember what myrrh is used for? What did they use myrrh for in the ancient world? It was for burials. So, so you, would, you would find it as a resin off of uh, a tree that grew there. It would harden and then you would crush it up and you would use it to anoint the dead. And that is a picture of suffering tied directly to even the name of the city. Smyrna means myrrh. And so suffering here to be a core component of what the Christians who lived there understood, this is what it would mean to carry an allegiance to Christ and not to Caesar. Now, if that background uh, helps you at all further understand the words that John is recording from Jesus, you and I must pay attention when Jesus starts off by saying, I am the first and the last, the one who was dead but is now alive. Polycarp here in the middle, in the second century, as the Bishop of Smyrna, we have recorded for us uh, the events that led to his martyrdom. And I want to read these for you. It's uh, just a few passages. It's recorded for the church in a volume called the Apostolic Fathers. So the writings of the disciples of the disciples. Don't let me lose you here. Don't let me lose you on this. It gets a little technical. Um, Polycarp there was a disciple of Jesus. Do you know who... Was his teacher? John. So the Apostle John was the one who taught Polycarp. Can you imagine how cool that would be? Uh, the beloved disciple, this, this one of the inner three of Jesus' circle, is your teacher? That's Polycarp right there. Having sat at the feet of John and John having sat at the feet of Jesus. Listen to the account. Now when at last he had finished Prayer, after remembering everyone who had come in contact with him, both great and small, known and unknown, and all the universal church throughout the world, it was time to depart. And so they seated him on a donkey, this is Polycarp, and brought him into the city on the day of the great Sabbath. 
Herod, the police captain, and his father, Nicetes, came out to meet him. After transferring him to their carriage and, and sitting down at his side, they tried to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in saying, Caesar is Lord, and offering incense, and other words to this effect, and thereby saving yourself? Now at first, he gave them no answer. But when they persisted, he said, I am not about to do what you're suggesting to me. Thus, failing to persuade him, they began to utter threats and made him dismount in such a hurry that he bruised his shin as he got down from the carriage. Uh, You need to know as well, at this time of this happening, Polycarp is 80 years old. So that's, that's what we're dealing with in this situation. And without even turning around, he went on his way eagerly and quickly as if nothing happened to him. And he was led into the stadium. As he was led into the stadium, there was such an uproar in the stadium that no one could even be heard. But as Polycarp entered the stadium, there came a voice from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and courageous. And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. And then as he was brought forward, there was a great uproar, and they heard that Polycarp, when they heard that Polycarp had been arrested. Therefore, when he was brought before him, the proconsul asked if he were Polycarp, and when he confessed that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, Have respect for your age, and other such things as they were accustomed to say. Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, and say away with the atheists. I got to explain that real quickly. The the, the pagan uh, uh, rulership here in the stadium, they would call Christians atheists. So so you would have been an atheist back then, and the reason is because Rome has a, uh, a cacophony, a plurality of gods. They they have <clears throat> they have such a plurality of gods that they worship everywhere. How many gods do we worship? So what does that make us look like? That makes you look like an atheist. That makes you look like somebody who says, none of these other gods are real. And so they would have called us atheists because we reject the plurality of their gods. And so um, the, the command here is that Polycarp is to say, away with the atheists, meaning Christians. Continuing. So Polycarp, Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were in the stadium. He motioned to them with his hand... And then groaning as he looked up to heaven said, away with the atheists. He, he, he turns that word right back on them because they're the ones who deny God. But when the magistrate persisted and said, swear the oath and I will release you, revile Christ. Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? Who saved me? But as he continued to insist, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. Now, if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name the day and give me a hearing. The proconsul said, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said, You 
I might have considered worthy of a reply, for when we've been taught to pay proper respect to rulers and authorities appointed by God, as long as it does us no harm, but as for these, I do not think they are worthy that I should have to defend myself before them. So the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. You get the threat? I will throw you to them unless you change your mind. But he said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change impossible for us. But it is a noble thing to change from that which is evil to righteousness. And then he said to him again, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly. And after just a little while, it's extinguished for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. As he spoke these and many other words, he was inspired with courage and joy and his face filled with grace. So that not only did he not collapse in fright at the things that were said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his own herald into the midst of the stadium to proclaim three times, Polycarp has confessed that he's a Christian. When this was proclaimed by the herald, the entire crowd, the Gentiles, as well as all the Jews living in Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable anger and with a loud shout, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches many not to uh, sacrifice or worship. Saying these things, they shouted aloud and asked Philip to set a lion loose upon Polycarp. But he said that it was not lawful for him to do so since he had already brought to a close the animal hunts. Then it occurred to them to shout in unison that Polycarp should be burned alive, for it was necessary that the vision be fulfilled that he received concerning his pillow when he saw fire praying and turned and said prophetically to those who were faithfully with him, it is necessary that I be burned alive. These things then happened with surprising swiftness. Quicker than words could tell, the crowd swiftly collecting wood and kindling from the workshops and baths, and the Jews being especially eager to assist in this, as was their custom. When the pyre was ready, they took off all his clothes. They removed his belt. He also tried to take off his shoes, though not previously in the habit of doing this, because all the faithful were always eager to touch his flesh. For he had been honored in every respect on account of his holy life even before his martyrdom. Then the materials prepared for the pyre were placed around him. And as they were about to nail him, he said, leave me as I am. For the one who enables me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain on the pyre without moving. Even without the sense of security that you get from the nails. So they did not nail him, but they tied him instead. Then having placed his hands behind himself and having been bound like a splendid ram chosen from a great flock for a sacrifice, a burning offering prepared and acceptable to God. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers of all creation, and of the whole race of this righteous who live in your presence, I bless you, because you have considered me worthy of this day and hour, that I might receive a place among the number of martyrs in the cup of your Christ. 
to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them in your presence today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as you have prepared and revealed beforehand, and have now accomplished, you who are the undeceiving and true God. For this reason, indeed, for all things, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you. Through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit, now and for all ages to come. Amen. Sounds like a pastor, doesn't it? You can't help but pray long prayers, even when you're being killed, apparently. I love it. When he had offered up the amen and finished his prayer, the men in charge of the fire lit it, and a mighty flame blazed up. They saw a miracle. That is, we to whom it was given to see. For we've been preserved in order to tell the rest of what happened. For the fire, taking the shape of an arch, like a sail of a ship filled with the wind, completely surrounded the body of the martyr. And it was there in the middle, not like flesh burning, but, but like bread baking, or like gold and silver being refined in a furnace. For we also perceived a very fragrant aroma as if it was the scent of incense or some precious spice. When the lawless men eventually realized his body cannot be consumed by the fire, they ordered an executioner to go up and stab him with a dagger. Smyrna. That, that's what we're studying. This, this is the situation to which Jesus says, I need to speak to this church. They're, they're really going through a time. Um, of all of the churches that have letters written in the book of Revelation, only two of them fail to bring a word of condemnation. And this is one. There, there's no condemnation in this letter. Jesus at no point says, I have this charge against you. <clears throat> he has no charge against the church in Smyrna. And because of their suffering and their willingness to obey, as evidenced by the testimony of Polycarp. You know something today? All of the seven churches are gone. They don't exist today. You can't go and visit them today, except in Smyrna. This church is the only one that still exists to this day in all these cities. So I'd like to bring out a couple observations. First of all, uh, Jesus says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. Uh, This was essentially... The, the way in which the government would put further financial strain upon Christians. So we're talking about a literal poverty here, but we're talking about a figurative uh, riches. Um, additionally, I want you to see repeated, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not. How, how great is that? Do you know that God knows? I don't, I don't know what it is that you're going through. But you know who does know? Jesus knows. He knows exactly what you're facing. This, this reminds me sometimes when the kids are fighting and one of them comes and says, Dad, somebody did this. And, and, and I say, I know, I know. But you need to get justice upon them. They don't use that word, but you know how kids act, right? <laughs> Look, the, the, the one who's in charge, we say, I know what's going on. I have it under control. That's the same message that's being given to us here. When Jesus says, I know you have to understand as a church, you have to understand as an individual, God knows what it is that you're facing. He has it under control. Uh, When he says the Jews here, uh, mentioned in verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Um, This is to recognize that it's, 
it's not enough to be a Jew just in um, your outward expression or, or, or to come from the lineage of Abraham. In fact, we have this passage that Paul writes in Romans. He says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And a circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And so that's the same type of situation we have here. Uh, The national identity of those who are Jews ought to be seen fulfilled in those who now see Jesus as the Messiah. So they're claiming to be Jews. And though they are nationally, they're not not really ones. Because if they were true Jews, they would be circumcised where? On their heart. That's right. By the Spirit. And so that's, that's the idea of this reference. Um, I, it really should strike you, though. And if you miss this, you're going to miss a main point here. Who, of all peoples, should believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Of all people. They're the ones who were given the covenant. They're the ones who were given the promises. Of all people, they're the ones who should have been on the, the Christian side of things. Simply to point out that when persecution shows up, many times it will come from those who should be on your side. They should have been siding with you, but they are not. He, uh, Jesus here calls them from the synagogue of Satan. Uh, Satan here, a word that means the accuser. Synagogue means they're gathering. So when they gather, they're really not gathering to worship God. They're, they're really genuinely worshiping Satan, though they may think they're worshiping God. Jesus says something very similar in John chapter 8. I, I won't have us turn there just for sake of time, but uh, invite you to read it yourself. Uh, the, the crowd there are saying that we're not illegitimate children. Because Jesus says, if you would know me, you would be of the father. But as it is, you're from your father. And they're like, we know our father. It's Abraham. Jesus says, if you followed Abraham, you would listen to me. As it is, you doing, you're doing the will of your father, the devil. That's right. So this is very similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 8. A couple other things. You'll notice uh, the command here, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you that the devil will put some of you into prison to test you. I just want to make sure that you understand prison then is not like prison today. We see prison today as a, as a punishment, right? That's not how they did it then. Um, if you were thrown into prison, it was, it was for one of three reasons. It was either, first, they were throwing you there to torture you, to coerce you away from how you were living. That's the first reason you'd be thrown in prison. The second reason is because you're awaiting trial. And so that's like jail, essentially, for us today. But the third, and the one that I think is the one that we're hinted to here, is they put you in prison to await your execution. When Jesus says the devil's going to throw some of you into prison, how are they getting out? They're not. not. That's right. They will be being burned, killed, beheaded, or thrown to the wild animals after prison. Um, And this is why he says to them, if you look back in the text here, be faithful even to the point of what? That's right. Holy smokes. You You didn't know this was going to be the sermon for today. Whoa. We're talking about being faithful to the point of death. Awaiting execution is the fate of these believers. Uh, One thing I want you to recognize, it's not the devil, even though Jesus says the devil will put some of you into prison. It's not like the devil comes down and is doing this. It's people doing this on behalf of who? The devil. That's right. So don't 
Don't lose sight of this. You have an adversary. You have an accuser roaming like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. This is happening right now. There's a spiritual battle happening right now. It's happening through the lives of people whose hearts don't bend the knee to Jesus, whose lips don't confess the name of Christ. So the devil is working through people, but I want to make sure you don't think that they are your enemy. You clear with me on this? If people don't agree with God's word, they're not your enemy. The spiritual forces of darkness are your enemy. Give me an amen on that. You guys good with that? Okay, I feel that that's pretty clear. All right, last thing. Um, I guess that is the last thing. I, I wrote down here, who is the true enemy? It's the synagogue of Satan. It's the devil who would throw you into prison. It's not these, these non-believers. It's not the people who have been deceived by the lies. If you think you're aiming at them, you're aiming at the wrong place. Which means the only answer to this is not eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. It's rather love is the answer. Because you're looking, seeking to change their hearts. You have to make sure you're focusing on the true problem. Uh, recently in our house, uh, we got out big, the, the big tub of decorations for fall. All the, all the pumpkins and all the little hay bales and everything to make the house look. Emily's great at that. The house looks great, right? Uh, but she put um, these little scented uh, wax melty things. What are these called? It's not a candle thing. No, it's not a candle. It's like a heater. It's like a little heater thing. You all know what I'm talking about. I don't know what it's called. Um, anyways, it makes it smell like pumpkin pie. It just makes it smell lovely. However, I walked in the house and it smelled like death. There was something was wrong. And I told her, I said, something, something's wrong with your decorations. Like right when you walk in the door. I mean, it was putrid. It smelled like, if you ever had a mouse die, you know what that smells like? That's what it smelled like. And we're looking all over, and I'm thinking it's the... Guess what? wasn't the decorations. It wasn't a mouse. Do you know what it was? It was the football shoes that had been left out right next to the door. That's what it was. This whole whole point is telling you, you're going to miss the real problem if you're not aiming at the right problem, right? As soon as we put those outside... Smell went away. Things smelled like pumpkin pie again, like they should. Um, But it, it wasn't the decorations. It wasn't anything else. This is the same message I have to give to you. When you find that your neighbor, your relative, your coworker does not align with the teachings from Jesus Christ, they are not your enemy. It's the one who has deceived their hearts that is your enemy. Everybody with me on this? Give me a good amen if you're with me. Okay. All right. So let, let's, let's deal with some of these uh, observations. First of all, true riches are not defined as the world defines them. That's the first thing I want you to see. Verse 9 says, <clears throat> I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. What? That's called a paradox. You're in poverty, but you're rich. Explain that one to me. Well, thankfully, we see this teaching throughout the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5 records these words. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that's the first thing. True riches are not defined the way the world defines them. Number two, suffering on earth is temporary and suffering persecution is a test. This is huge. This, is, this one we all need to lock down. 
When we think about suffering, first thing you need to know is it's temporary. Second thing you need to know is it very likely could be a test of your allegiance. So listen again to the words of Polycarp. As I read to you, he said there to the crowds, you heathen, you threaten with fire that burns only briefly. And then after just a little while, it's extinguished. But for you are ignorant of the fire that's coming in judgment and the eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Or this passage, as you probably have heard before, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Suffering on earth is temporary. And suffering persecution is a test. I'll simply just say this. That's so much easier to say than to actually go through. It doesn't change it being true. Thirdly, genuine faith. And this is a tough one. Genuine faith is a faithfulness even unto death. How many people in here think you're going to be killed for your faith? Probably not very likely. And that, in many ways, is too bad. Not that I wish suffering upon anybody, but I long to have a genuineness of our faith. You had to be committed in this day. You call yourself a Christian, you carry a death warrant for your life. Um, I had a, a member in our church send me an article from the Christian Post a couple days ago. said that in California, there's now legislation that openly criticizes any pastor or religious leader when they don't agree with the cultural expression, both for gender and sexuality. If you don't agree with the culture, legislation is now being passed that you can openly criticize religious leaders and pastors. Now, you tell me that's not a target upon those who seek to honor Jesus and his commands. I don't know, folks. You might end up dying for your faith. I don't know. I know God's word says things are going to get worse. People will be lovers of themselves, not lovers of God. I know that's true. So who's ready? Boy, I told you. Boy, we had to come to church today and listen to this. Here we go. 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Three things you got to lock down. Riches aren't defined as the world defines them. Suffering is temporary and persecution is a test. And lastly, genuine faith is a faithfulness even unto death. And so here's what I want to leave you with. What do you do with this? Two things. Be fearless and be faithful. Church, you need to be fearless. Look back with me in God's word. Verse 10 says, do not be afraid. Uh, Literally, the Greek word, the Greek phrase there is fear nothing. It is followed with a clause, though, of that which you are about to suffer. And so my, my call to you is the same as this. Don't be afraid, church. Don't be afraid. Listen to the words of your heavenly father. Sadie, listen to me. I said, you ain't going to get a shot. Guess what she was able to do? She was able to walk with faith now, unafraid, because she believed. I'm calling the same to you today. Believe what God says. Do not be afraid of what could happen to you. And then faithfulness is a similar idea. Faithfulness, if you look down again further in verse 10. By the way, this is worth underlining. These two commands. 
Verse 10, don't be afraid. And right in the middle towards the end, be faithful even to the point of death. I want to give you three spheres to do that one or to obey that. Number one, be fearless and faithful in the face of temptation. So the church in Smyrna, man, we're not making any money. We got all these taxes, taxes uh, levied against us. They say if we, if we just worship the emperor like we're supposed to, Things will go better. And so what might they, get, what might they give into? They might give into temptation. Uh, listen again to Jesus' words, Matthew 6. He says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. And 1 Timothy 6, you, you know this passage. Uh, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, number one, be fearless and faithful uh, in the face of temptation. Number two, be fearless and faithful in the face of slander. Boy, I, I wonder what, what it would take for you to revile Christ, to deny. I wonder what it would take. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy of this truth. He says, in fact, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. Evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Um, I, I know I don't have a ton of time here, but I really want you to look at a passage with me. Go to Luke chapter 21. Hold, hold your spot in Revelation. Just turn back in your Bible, Luke chapter 21. <coughs> We're going to read a couple of short verses here. I want you to see Jesus' words. Page 1499 in the Pew Bibles. Luke 21, starting in verse 12, Jesus says this, But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors on account of all, all on account of my name. This will result in being a witness to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed by even parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Um. You need to be fearless and faithful in the face of slander. Uh, it, it's, it's the reality today that if you stand for things that God outlines, you will be called guilty of hate speech. You will be called bigoted, uh, loveless, intolerant. You, you will be accused of these things. What would it take for you to shut up, though? Is that enough? You fear man enough to say, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid now. I'm not going to speak the name of Christ. Or what if you give in to temptation? What if the government enacted some law, like they're starting to in California, that eventually could get to the point where they could seize your property? What if they took your car? Is that enough for you to deny Christ? Took all the clothes out of your wardrobe? Took your house? Is that enough for you to deny, deny Christ? Thirdly, you need to be fearless and faithful in the face of suffering. What if they would take your very life? James chapter 5 has these words. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Be fearless and faithful in the face of temptation, in the face of slander, in the face of suffering. Two ways. If you're asking, all right, I believe you. How how do you do this? I believe you do this by setting your hope on the promises of God. You're given two promises in this passage. First, you're given the crown of life. The end of verse 10 says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown the Smyrnians were familiar with was that beautiful city with that golden road going around the mountains. That was their crown. Jesus says, I will give you the garland of life. Um, You see this in James chapter 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And secondly, you are given this promise. You will not be hurt by the second death. If you look with me very briefly here as I conclude, verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And if if you're here this morning saying, what's that? What's the second death? Let me just end by reading to you out of the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20. John writes these words. Then I saw that a great white throne... And him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I hope you believe God's word this morning. I hope you take a warning to see the direction that our world is going. Most of all, I hope that you hear the words of your heavenly father. Believe him when he gives you these truths. Be faithful even to the point of death. Do not be afraid. Be very courageous. He will give you the right words to say. Don't fear man. Fear God. Fear the judge. For he has given you the hope of life so that you have nothing to be afraid of. Let me just conclude with the words that we've already sang. Will you bow and pray with me? No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry until final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. Church, what do you say to that? Amen.